0: If you're a guest with us, we've been working through our study on the book of Exodus, and we're coming to the end of our study on the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and this morning is uh, especially challenging because this command really captures the the rest of the commands. Um, we, We talk about these as the Ten Commandments, but in the text, it's not called the Ten Commandments, they're called the Ten Words. Later in Deuteronomy, they're referred to as Commandments. And really there, the the Hebrew word is words. These are words from a heavenly father to his children about how life was intended to be lived. These are words of, of a God who's entering into relationship with his people, who's inviting them into covenant relationship with him. He's teaching them and us, this is how life was intended to be lived. This is how I want you to live in right relationship with me, walking with me together. So these are and this is how chapter 20 begins, the very words of God, loving, life-giving words that he speaks to us in this text. And when we look at the 10 commandments, we've we've tried hard each week to point out how this is not simply a surface level action, a, a behavior modification that we're being called to, but these are really things that drive us or drive down into the heart And as we look at these, maybe you grew up like I did. You see the Ten Commandments and you see them as a checklist. Things to do or not do. I can see that I did not murder. Check. Good. I'm off the hook. And in fact, that's actually how Paul viewed the law. He saw it as a list. He saw it as things to do or not do. A list to keep. And in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, It wasn't until I got to the last commandment. Coveting that I realized that it was far more than external behavior modification. It was about my heart. My heart is so infinitely more sinful than I ever dared believe. He says in Romans 7, verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But when the law came in and when the law spoke and when it said you shall not covet, I realized all the ways and the levels to which I covet. All the ways that my heart is disordered and dysfunctional and separated from God. When we come to the Ten Commandments, we're intended to see that these are matters of the heart. That they are actually impossible to keep. And that should alarm us. For some of us, it it actually makes us angry Maybe we despair of God. What kind of God would give us a set of standards that are impossible to keep? The kind of God that's a loving Heavenly Father who wants to reveal your heart to you. He wants to pull back the curtain on your heart to you so that you see when you're told not to do something, you see the angst within you that you want to do it. I want you to see my heart. These these are what the the commandments do. They actually awaken us to the sinfulness of our own hearts. And so this morning, we need to see in this last commandment in verse 17, we need to see what Paul saw. We need to see that this is not simply about a checklist, but this is a matter of the heart. That this commandment gets right down into the depths of our heart, reveals us to ourselves. And so for those reasons, we need to explore this. We need to understand, as we have done with the other commandments, what this commandment teaches us. What's being explicitly said? What does it mean to covet or to not covet? And then what does it reveal about God and what does it reveal about us and how we were originally created and intended to live? And then we need to see how this command hooks us, confronts us, challenges us, reveals, exposes our hearts to ourselves and then as we've done with all the commandments, and this commandment is no different, we need to see how it points us to Jesus. How is it fulfilled by Jesus, and how does he write this commandment on our hearts and transform us through this commandment, through his word? Those are our three points this morning. What does it teach us? What is, how does it hook us? And then how does this command, how is it fulfilled? And our hearts are transformed by Jesus. First, what does it teach us? The text, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. I said again, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Immediately, what we realize if we're attentive is that we have come full circle in the Ten Commandments from where we began. We started with thoughts, and we end with thoughts. We started with worship, we end with worship. We, th- we started with desire, and we end with desire. We said one way to outline the Ten Commandments is thoughts, words, deeds, and then backing out deeds, words, thoughts. That all of them, vertical and horizontal, the first place, the central place, that you're going to begin to see the transformation of someone who is living with vertical honor to God and horizontal honor to man, the most central integral place that you're going to see that is in within the context of of the family but as we look at how we started that you shall have no other gods before me how do we end you shall not covet your neighbors donkey male servants female servants house wife and if it wasn't explicit enough anything that belongs to your neighbor and so what we're seeing here is that this is a command especially of the heart one of the things that's, that, that's, that, that we observe real quickly is that coveting is a matter of the heart. It, it's, the, it's the primary command, especially in the last six commands, that we cannot see. It's one of the only commands that you cannot see. I can see whether you take my sleek new donkey, but I cannot see if you desire my sleek new donkey. I can tell if you take something from me, but I can't see If you desire it, it's a matter of the heart. And what we need to understand from the outset is that desire is not the problem. It's dysfunctional, disordered, misaligned desires that overflow from a dysfunctional, disordered, misaligned heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They are desperately sick. Deceitfully wicked And desperately sick. Where do our desires come from but a deceitfully wicked and desperately sick heart? That desire is that our disordered desires overflow from disordered hearts. That this is an issue of sinful hearts and that we have to address our hearts. This means that we can't just follow the, the wisdom of the world. Follow your heart. This also means that we can't just dismiss away My desires are my desires, and you can't tell me what to do with my desires. You're right, I can't. But an infinitely holy God who created you with desires that were directed, intended to be directed singularly, solely towards him, he can, and he does. And so what we do is follow the crumbs from our desires to the real problem, which is our heart, and that's what hooked Paul. That's what got him. That's what made him realize I'm far more sinful than I ever thought. It's not just about keeping a list of do not murder and do not commit adultery and and do not steal. It's it's about the heart that wants to do those things, that desires to do those things, that, that is misaligned with God. My heart needs transformation. And so we're seeing that quickly as we look at this commandment. What we need to understand quickly is also how what coveting is. As a a simple definition, coveting is an inordinate, selfish desire for something other than God. Those words are intentional, they're important. Inordinate, excessive, obsessive, selfish, self-centered, self-gratifying desire for something other than God, for something created rather than the creator. At the end of the day, coveting is seeing something desiring that thing, desiring to take that thing for my own personal self-gratification. When we look at the New Testament word, it's a particular word that's sometimes translated covet, sometimes translated idolatry, and it means to set our affections and our inordinate desires on something such that it displaces proper affections for God and dictates our actions and changes our behavior. That's a long definition. Understand what's being said here. It's setting our affections and, and inordinate desires on something that displaces proper affection for God. And dictates how we behave. How we act. Coveting changes our calendars. Coveting changes our habits. Coveting affects our behavior. It's wanting something so inordinately, so obsessively that everything else, we're willing to give up everything else, even the most treasured things in our lives. I want that and I'm willing to give up my family or my spouse or my time or my money. I want that thing so inordinately that it changes and rouses my affections and my behavior And it reorients my life, my schedule, at great cost to myself. It's desiring something more than you want God or obedience to God. At the the end of the day, what we're talking about is idolatry. We've talked about idolatry again when we talked about the first commandment, that that we shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no other images, no images of me, that you shall have no other God. You can have no other God, but you can have all of me. And here what we're seeing is we're, we're ending where we began with the same reiteration. You can have no other thing except for God. We were created for singular desire, singular affection for God. We, we used a quote when we talked about the first commandment. I want to bring back around in talking about idolatry. It's Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a British preacher. And he said this, Idolatry is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds such controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention and energy and money. Again, idolatry and coveting are are being attracted and drawn to something so much so that it costs us everything else that we're willing to sacrifice everything else. And look at the things in the text that it's possible for us to covet, that it's possible for us to idolize. Look at what it says here. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife, male servant or female servant, ox or donkey. And in case, if it wasn't clear enough, it says anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are all ordinate, uh, these are all animate things. These are all, all physical things. These are all concrete things. A donkey, ox, these are things that we can see, we can touch with our hands. We're not to covet these things. We, we can idolize these things. But notice also it's possible to not only idolize concrete things, but conceptual things. What kind of person has donkeys, oxes, oxen, a house, wife, Male servants and female servants. What kind of person has all of these possessions? A person of status, a person of recognition, a person of wealth, a person of position. So we can idolize not only concrete things, donkeys, we can also idolize conceptual things. Approval, status, power. Oh, I wish that I had their position. I wish that I had their recognition. I wish that I had their approval, their fame, their love. I wish that I had, just like we can worship, a physical thing. What's more, what's interesting is that we can not only worship and idolize and covet concrete and conceptual things, we covet and, 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 and idolize things, not only the type, but also the quantity and the quality of things. In other words, I, I, don't, I don't have any donkeys. I wish that I had a donkey. I want a donkey. Man, my life would be so much better with a donkey. I don't know if you feel that way. I don't feel that way. But, but for sake of illustration, I wish that I had a donkey. It would, it would so satisfy my life. But we can also have a donkey and wish that we had more donkeys. Oh, I wish that I had two donkeys or five or ten. Oh, if I could just have a whole bunch of donkeys, then my life would be whole. And then we can also wish, man... I have a bunch of donkeys, but they're terrible. They're, not, they're so misbehaved. I wish that I had well-behaved donkeys. Their donkeys are well-behaved. They listen to them. Don't we do this with our children? <laughs> oh, I wish that I had children. If I could have a child, that would satisfy me. That would, make, that would give me meaning, purpose, hope, and identity in this world. Oh, but if I have one, I need two. I need three. Oh, if I could just have more children, that would give me meaning, hope, and purpose in this world. And then what do we do? Oh, but my children, if I could just have well-behaved children like yours. I'm speaking for someone else, not myself. Oh, if I could just have children that are, would, would sleep through the night or be well-behaved or not scream when we go into a restaurant. Oh, I wish that I could have. Then my life would be whole. We do it with marriage. Singles, do you not feel sometimes, oh, my life is incomplete? If I could just be married, I would be, I'd be whole, I'd be complete, I'd have life, meaning, and purpose. And then when you get married, married couples, don't you sometimes feel, oh, I wish that I could have a better behaved husband than the one that I have? Sorry to be so specific. I wish that I could have more. I wish I could have better. It's why so many people leave marriages. Oh, I don't want this one. I want that one. Theirs is so much better. I could have so much more. And then married couples, don't you sometimes feel even Oh, if I could just be out. Oh, to be like those singles. They have freedom. They have independence. They get to do and say what they want whenever they want. We can covet and idolize the type, the quantity, and the quality of anything. But we can also idolize the experience. Oh, to be loved. Oh, to be cherished. Oh, that would give me meaning and purpose and hope in life. If I could just get that love and that affection, that approval from so-and-so and and -and such-and-such. We can idolize anything. We can covet anything. And we do, and we do it all the time. At root, coveting and idolatry is this. It's dissatisfaction and discontentment with who God is, with who he's made me to be, with what he's given me, and even with what he withholds. It's a dissatisfaction and discontentment with who God is. My life is incomplete, and so therefore God must, must be wrong. God must be incomplete. He's not everything that I need, and I, and I need more. I need more. I need something here that will give me satisfaction. I need something that will give me whole. He's withheld from me. That's not good. I want more. At root, coveting idolatry is a dissatisfaction and discontentment with who God is, who we are, what he's given, and even what he's withheld from us. So that's what coveting is. What does it teach us about who God is? Each of the commandments reveals something about his character. Each of the commandments reveals something about his, his nature. They tell us something about how we were made also, our character and nature of how we were intended to live. When you look at honor, do not, or, or, not, do not honor your mother and father, honor your mother and father, we're, we're learning something about God that he is all about honor that he's all about respect and of authority of authority structures of authority lines that he's all about honor and we are created to be about honor when when we're told do not do not lie or, or, or misrepresent your neighbor's name and, and reputation and, and character it, we're, we're told that we're teaching we're learning that God is about truth and wholeness and 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 encouragement and speaking life into and and we were created to do the same So what about with coveting? What do we learn about the character and nature of God and the character and nature of who we are? What we learn is that God is an all-satisfying God and we were created to be satisfied in him. That he is an infinitely, infinitely satisfying God. That everything he is, is enough. And we were created to rest in his enoughness. We were created to rest in Him, to be satisfied by His hand, to have singular focus on Him and Him alone. That's what we're learning here, which immediately tells us something about ourselves. We were created as desiring beings, that desire is not the issue, that we were created to have desire. When we talked about do not murder, we talked about anger. Anger was a gift from God. It's only a gift from God when it's aligned with God. When it's under his authority. But because we've come out from under his authority, now our anger, 99.9% of the time, is not aligned with his, it's aligned with ourselves. Desires the same way. We were created to have a desire, a singular focus, and an affection for who God is and be satisfied in that and in nothing else. But as a result of the fall, we stepped out from under him, and now our desires are disordered because our hearts are rebellious, dysfunctional. And disordered. If we want to understand this commandment, we see here that it's stated in the negative, do not, do not covet, but we also understand that it's, it can be stated in the positive. You should be content in who God is and who he's made you to be and what he's given you and was what he withholds from you. That's how we were created from the beginning. I love... Jeremiah Burroughs is a a Puritan pastor, Puritan writer, and he he wrote The Rare Jewel, The Secret of of Contentment. And it was on my list last year to read, and then I got in two or three chapters, and it was way too Puritan for me, uh, meaning that I could not understand the language, and I need the Cliff Notes version. But I love this quote that was in the first few chapters there, and he he kept uh, hammering on this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Do you hear it? What we're called to, what we were created for, was to have a, 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 a sweet, humble disposition about ourselves, submissive to the will, to the rule, to the, to the reign of God in our lives, and trusting his fatherly disposal in every condition trusting his fatherly care for us that he's a good loving fatherly God that wants us and knows us and created us and knows everything about us and we were created to rest in that to have a singular focus all-consuming desire to, be, to receive from his hand and be happy and satisfied, to bask in his love and acceptance and approval and not look horizontally, comparing ourselves to one another and looking towards horizontal trinkets and treasures give us meaning, purpose, hope, and identity. This is dripping from every word in the beginning of the Bible from Genesis 1 to 3 that we were created to bask in his love and his presence that we can't have any other gods, but we can have all of him, all of his face. This is how we were created, to be content in him, who he made us to be, what he's given, and even what he withholds. But this isn't the world we live in, is it? This isn't the nature of your very heart. And you know this, and I know this. This isn't the world we live in. We live in a world that is absolutely, radically discontent, longing and longing and longing for more which leads us to our second point how this command confronts us how does it hook us how does it challenge us how does it reveal our hearts we are created to be content in who God is who he made us to be what he's given and what he withholds but we live in a world of more our hearts are on a desperate quest for more and also the world is preaching a message that our hearts and our lives are incomplete without more because the world is under the rule of the prince of the power of air who is constantly whispering in our ear, you are incomplete. God is incomplete. You need more. We see it from the very beginning. How do, why does this happen? Why is this the world we live in? Why is this the condition of our hearts? We, we see it in the temptation in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we hear these three statements, these three questions that the tempter comes in and asks. He he says, did God actually say that you can't? In other words, the question there is doubt. He puts the seed of doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve and and causes them to, to, to view God as suspect, as questionable. Did God really say and then it gets even deeper and thicker. He says, you will sh- not surely die. In other words, God's lying to you. God not not, not, doesn't have your best in mind. He's, he, he's lying to you. He's deceiving you. Ironically, the deceiver is telling them that God is deceiving them. And then in verse 5, God knows you will be like him. You will be like him. In other words, God's holding out on you. God's hiding something from you. He doesn't have a fatherly, loving disposition towards you. He's afraid of you. He's scared of you. He's hiding something from you. He can't be trusted. He's deceiving you. God's withholding something from you. What's the root of the temptation in the garden? Who God is is not enough. What he's given is not enough. What he has withheld, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, what he's even withheld is not good. You need more. At the root of the temptation is God's incomplete. You're incomplete. Your life is incomplete. And you need more. We see this played out in the action of the fall. That's the temptation. In verse 6, we see the, the fall. And we see it starts well in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight for the eyes. At that point, if we stop there, that's, that's okay. It is good for food. God has created creation for us to delight in, to enjoy. That, that, that We're fine at that point. But it goes further. When she saw that it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and to be desired. Interestingly, that Hebrew word is the exact same Hebrew word as Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 for covet. That she saw the fruit as something to be desired, as something to covet, as something to take or to have an inordinate desire for and to take and to consume for self-gratification. Eve had an unquenchable, inordinate desire for something that did not belong to her, that was expressly forbidden from her, and she was willing to take it at great cost to herself. She was willing to take it at great cost of relationship with Adam, at great cost of relationship with God, at even great cost of the consequence that's clearly outlined in 217, you will die. I don't care, I have to have it. And now every single one of us is born with that subtle whisper in the background. Every single one of us is born with a subtle whisper of your life is incomplete. God is incomplete. God's holding out on you. God's hiding from you. God's timing is not good. What he's given you is not enough. And when he withholds something, you need to go and take it. No, no, no. You are better judge of your life and character and what you need and don't need. You need more. Your life's incomplete. God's incomplete. And you need more. Go and take it. This is the condition of our hearts And this is the air we breathe. It's everywhere we go. And we don't even know it. We're so blind to it. We don't see our own hearts because we don't take time to examine it through the truth of the word. And we don't see it in everything that we see all around us. It's in every infomercial. It's in every advertisement. It's in every political argument that a politician presents to us. It's in every social media post that you see. My favorite infomercial, I think it was filmed in the, in the 90s, it looks like the 80s, is, this, is the Sunsetter Retractable Awning, have you seen this, the Sunsetter Retractable Awning? It's, it, it, they're, they're all awesome, these infomercials, if you really pay attention to them, but this one is, is my favorite. Have you, is your back so miserable that you can't even enjoy it when the sun is out? Are you so tired of the the harmful UV rays baking you into dust on your back porch? You know what you need. You need the Sunsetter Retractable Awning, where you can go out into the baking heat and manually crank the Sunsetter Retractable Awning out so that you can sit in the perfect cool shade and drink your iced tea. Sweet tea in the South. If you don't have one of these, your life is incomplete. Do you hear the messaging of it? And so what you need, you need to spend three easy payments of $3,000. And you can have this retractable awning. And if you call right now, we'll reduce the cost to $400 for you. It's unbelievable. And what's my favorite part about the ad is the lady that's in it is wearing long sleeve shirt the entire time. Don't miss the subtle messaging of the sunset or retractable awning in every infomercial we've ever seen. Your life is incomplete. You need more. Your back porch is terribly incomplete, and you need this. It's the messaging every time we go to the mall, if you still go to the mall. It's the messaging that you see when you look online, any advertisement you get. Every advertisement puts somebody in perfectly clothes, clothing, smiling, and their life is happy, and, and everything is going well, and what are they communicating? Your life is miserable without these clothes. What you desperately need is this scarf. Unless you live where you need a, sun, a, a sunshade retractable awning. But what you need is this scarf. This scarf will satisfy. This scarf will, will, br- will make you whole. Every advertisement, every political ad, every politician tells us the same thing. I'm the one that you need. I'll fix everything. I'll solve all your problems. I'll meet your needs. What you need to is elect me, and I'll fix it all. What we see We see it in every social media post. Your life is so miserable because you've not traveled where I've traveled. Your life is so miserable because you've not eaten the perfectly plated food that I have eaten. Look at this. Your life is incomplete. It's the heartbeat of our heart. It's the air that we breathe. Everything about us, we feel like we're incomplete. God is incomplete. He's holding something out on who we are. And we live in a fallen world. So at root, those ads, those politicians, they do get something right. We are incomplete. We are infinitely restless. We are on a quest for constant, constant quest for more, but for more of what? The problem that those advertisers and politicians and social media and, and our hearts don't understand is that the solution is not a scarf or a retractable awning. It's a savior. We desperately need someone to come in to reorient, to rescue, to redeem our hearts and therefore redeem and reorient our desires. There's nothing under the sun that will satisfy, that will wrap its, that can wrap its arms around us. There's no sh- sunshade, there's no scarf, there's no clothing, there's no boat, there's no home, there's no marriage, there's no singleness, there's no nothing that will hear our deepest cries in our darkest hours. There's nothing that can wrap its arms around us, that bottles up our tears, that knows the number of hairs on our head, that knows the number of days that we will live. There is nothing under the sun that can comfort and save and rescue and redeem except for God and God alone and Jesus, our Savior. What we need is more. But we need more than the worthless trinkets and treasures our eyes are drawn to and, and, and distracted by. We need to look, as a writer of Ecclesiastes says, over the sun, beyond this earth, beyond the trinkets and treasures that we see here, the concrete things and the conceptual things that we think will satisfy. We need to look above and beyond. We need the infinite, all-surpassing treasure of Jesus. None of the trinkets and treasures that we chase after can bear the weight of our desires and expectations. Your spouse cannot bear the weight of your desires and expectations. Your children cannot bear the weight of your desires and expectations. That whatever toy trinket thing that you're chasing after cannot bear the weight of of your desires and expectations. Only Jesus can. His shoulders are big enough Strong enough, broad enough to bear the weight of all your desires, all your expectations, and infinitely exceed them beyond your wildest imaginations. Only Jesus. I like what C.S. Lewis writes in in his chapter, Mere Christianity, on hope and and dealing with our disordered desires. How do we deal with our disordered desires? What do we do about this? What's the the avenue, the the route to hope if our desires are this, this disordered? And he says there's really three ways that we could approach. One is to say, okay, these things aren't satisfying me. Many people say, my spouse isn't satisfying me, so what I need is a new spouse. But what we fail to realize is that we take our hearts everywhere we go. What I, I, what, what, my job is not satisfying me. I just desperately need a job that gives me attention and understanding and, and appreciation and respect and value. This is not giving it, so I, what I need is a, is a new job but we take our hearts wherever we go. So what he says, the first way we try to do it is by replacing our stuff with more stuff. What we try to do is, is we, we say, this thing won't satisfy, so what I need is a new thing, shinier, bigger, better, and that will satisfy it. And he says it won't. And we know it won't. The second way that he, he offers and suggests that we try to solve this dilemma of, of our disordered desires is to not blame our stuff, but to blame ourselves. No, 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 what I'm desiring is is wrong, is bad, it's incomplete, stop it, can't do that. And so what we try is to iron, will, crowbar ourselves out of desiring bad things, things that won't satisfy, into desiring things that will. And that won't work either. Because we'll fail every single time. Because what will we do? Bad, stop desiring that, no, can't do that. I need you. And we look to something else. We do it all the time. So then what's the way? C.S. Lewis suggests it's to analyze the desires, to stand and say, why is it that I desire this thing? Why is it that I'm, I, I have desires? And why is it that they're disordered? They're, I'm being told here in the truth to desire God, but I'm desiring this thing and, and this battle in between what's going on here. And here's what he says. The Christian way, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. We feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made to desire something better. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that this universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. In other words, the things that we, the trinkets and treasures we look to horizontally to give us meaning, purpose, identity, hope, to, to, to satisfy our lives, to give us comfort, to make us feel whole. All of them are created by a creator to lift our eyes to that creator, to, to, to arouse our attention, to look to him, to realize this thing will not satisfy and no other thing will satisfy, only he will satisfy. God and God alone, our creator, our loving heavenly father, our quest for more was intended to find its end in God and him alone. And that leads us to this third point. If our quest for God, our quest for for more was was intended to, to end in God and God alone, but it does not, then what's our hope? What's the remedy for our disordered desires that overflow from a disordered, dysfunctional, deceitful heart? What's the what's the remedy? What's the the hope? And that's what leads us. To Jesus? What's the remedy for our disordered, dysfunctional desires? What can transform us from people enamored by, by created things and lift our eyes to the, to the Creator and, and Him alone? The answer is Jesus. And some of you might immediately feel like that's so cliche. That's just, there it is, another Sunday school answer. Just stick the band aid of Jesus on it and everything will be solved. And friends, I just want to encourage you, if you think that Jesus is a cliche, then you have not mined the depths of the treasure of who he is. He is an infinite, loving Savior, and he alone fulfills this command and has the power to change our hearts to desire this command. Let's explore that for just a second. First, how does he fulfill this command? Quickly, three things. Jesus alone, where we repeatedly fail, Jesus alone has rightly ordered singular focused desires for God. Where we fail time and time again, Jesus is the only one who fulfills Deuteronomy 6, 5. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with with all your might, with everything that you are, with all your soul. He alone is the only one that fulfills that. When you understand the language of Deuteronomy 6, 5 and that command, that imperative, you realize that what it's saying is to love the Lord your God with just, let's just take our thoughts. All your thoughts, every single one of every single day needs to be singularly focused on adoration and affection of God. Anybody done that in the last 10 minutes? No. It's not how we live our lives. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and, and might. Only Jesus fulfills that. He alone has singular, rightly ordered desires for God. Secondly, where we are discontent and dissatisfied with who God is, with who we are, with what he's done, with his will, Jesus has a fierce and zealous loyalty to the Father's will. In, in John 2.17, it says that, that zeal for his house consumes Jesus. A passion, a desire, a zeal for the will of God. For the word of God. It, it consumes Jesus. Jesus says in, in John 4.34 and 6.38 and chapter 14 that his delight is the Father's will. And what's the Father's will for the Son? That he would die. I, He has a, a singular affection, singular emotion, singular desire for God and God alone and His will, even to the point of death. This is extraordinary thirdly, he fulfills this command where we are willing to sacrifice everything for a trinket. Jesus alone willingly sacrificed himself for us. Where we are willing to sacrifice uh, everything, our spouse, our children, everything for little trinkets. Jesus alone willingly sacrificed himself for you and for me. my my three-year-old went to a three-year-old birthday party and they gave out party favors yesterday and she got a new slap bracelet, 80s awesome toy, and she's so proud of that slap bracelet. We are willing to trade God and the infinite treasure of Jesus for little slap bracelets, little Oriental Trading Company toys. Like, what's wrong with our hearts and our lives? We have to ask that question and then we have to see Jesus was not. He was willing to trade his life for you and for me. So the question we have to ask is, is his work, is his perfect obedience, is his singular devotion and desire to God and God alone, is that your hope and your righteousness this morning? Is that your hope and your righteousness is that everything that you're banking on and hoping in? I don't have the desires. My desires are disordered. My heart is dysfunctional. Do you have that humility to admit that, to confess that? Then look to Jesus as the only one who has the singular desires that you desperately need. That's how he fulfills it. How do we grow If that's how he fulfills it, and that's my confession, that he and his desires alone are my hope and my righteousness, then how do I grow incrementally in loosening the grip on on these treasures and trinkets of this world so that I can grow in my appreciation and affection for the infinite treasure of heaven in Jesus? Quickly, a few things. First, well, before, we've already talked about this, but before we, we get into this list, we need to understand that these commandments, Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31 to 33, these, if, if, if there's a new covenant being written and Jesus comes into our heart, we've trusted him and he invades and he's rescuing, then these covenants, these commandments are written on our heart. Ezekiel 36, that he takes our heart of flesh out and gives us a heart of stone, sorry, takes our heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. Thank God it's the other way around. And then he moves us to follow his decrees. Gives us a love for his decrees. So that's what happens when we are redeemed and rescued. So then how do we grow? First, we have to recognize that we are under new management. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. That we have been crucified in Christ or with Christ. That it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What's Paul saying in Galatians 2.20? We are under new management. We died with Christ. Our rule died with Christ. Our reign died with Christ. We are now under his rule, under his reign. If we have placed our faith, moved the ladder of our hearts and lives from the crumbling wall of self and all the trinkets and treasures to the firm and secure wall of Jesus, then he is invaded and we are under new management. And if we are under new management, then so too are our desires, that our desires are subject to his rule. We don't get to follow our heart or say, I desire what I want to desire, and you can't tell me. No, we say, I'm under new management, and so too are my desires. Jesus, would you have me? Is this the, are my desires aligned with you? Is this the way that you would have me walk and live and act and, and buy and Enjoy. is this where you would have me go? Galatians 5.24, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our desires are under his rule and reign. Thirdly, this means the world is no longer mine to have and to hold however I see fit. If I'm under new management and my desires are under new management, under the rule and reign of Jesus, then I don't get to say I want what I want whenever I want it, how I want it, where I want it. The world has been crucified to me, Galatians 6.14, and I to the world. It's no longer mine to have and to hold how I see fit. Force, that means that now I fight daily. I must fight daily to bring my desires to the altar and crucify them and put them to death. That's what it means here in Colossians 3, 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity. And he uses these words that are all words around what we've been talking about. Inordinate passions, evil, self-centered, self-gratifying desires, and covetousness, inordinate desires for more, which is idolatry. Put them to death. I'm under new management. My desires are under new management. I bring my desires to to alignment with Jesus, and I take the desires that are out of alignment with him, and I crucify them. I put them to death. But then there's a question. And this is where most Christians end, right there, where we just stopped. They don't go past this to where we have to go if we really want to grow and see change in our lives. By whose strength do we do that? By whose strength do we crucify the flesh? By whose strength do we crucify the old desires? By whose strength and whose power do we put to death the desires of the flesh? The scriptures say it's not by our strength, it's by the strength and power of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Said another way, if you want to grow in aligning your your, your desires with Christ and putting to death the desires of the flesh, then you must keep in step with the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, the Spirit is the one that enables you to do that. And how does he do it? How does he do it? How does the Spirit do it? What is the Spirit's primary job? It's to lift our eyes for the trinkets and treasures of this world to the infinite beauty and power and strength of Jesus and Jesus alone. That is his primary job description. How does he do it? He comes in and enables us and empowers us to stop looking at these things or to see them for what they are, empty, worthless, trinkets, slap bracelets, and to lift our eyes to the infinite, all-surpassing treasure and glory and beauty of Jesus. This is the secret that Paul learned in Philippians chapter 4. And this is where we're going to end. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 to 13. Paul summarized everything that I just threw out in three verses. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Don't miss that. I have learned that I'm supposed to be content. What have you learned this morning? You're supposed to be content. You're not supposed to covet. But if he stops there, it's law. It's an impossible standard we cannot live up to. It's slapping our wrist. But Paul learned something. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, the secret. What's the secret that Paul learned? What's the secret to contentment? What's the secret to fighting covetousness and the desires and disordered desires of our hearts? What's the secret? It's the most misapplied verse in the Bible. It's Philippians 4.13 that we put on our eye black before we play football. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the secret that Paul is defining there? It's, it's looking to the beauty and the strength and the power of Jesus. It's by his strength. It's by his beauty. It's by his all-surpassing beauty that the trinkets and treasures of this world become, what Paul says, rubbish. Such that I don't even care. I don't care if I live or die. I don't care what I get. I don't care what I have. I don't care if I have more, if I have less. I don't care what you have. I don't care what I have. All I care about is the all-surpassing, infinite treasure of who Jesus is, and that loosens our grip and that is what gives us life it's the secret surpassing treasure and endless power of Jesus alone it's looking to his hand and from his hand for all that we need it's hoping in his work it's hoping in his righteousness it's hoping in his treasures and pleasures that he gives as we end let me ask these questions are you looking to Jesus' hand for all that he gives and trusting them With even what he withholds? Are you looking to his hand for his timing, his calendar, his schedule, his agenda, his rule, his reign? Is that what you're looking for and trusting in and hoping in? Are you fighting the overmastering discontent and disordered desires of your heart by your own strength? Are you listening to the Spirit who calls you through the Word to open your eyes and lift your eyes to the infinite beauty and treasures of Jesus? And lastly, if you're growing in that in that growth, in incrementally desiring and, and, and incrementally loosening the grip on and seeing the treasure of this world and the pleasure of this world and the approval of man drop aside and, and you're starting to see incrementally glimmers and glimpses and, of the beauty and the majesty and the, and the glory of who Jesus is, the treasure of who he is, then celebrate. Because the Spirit's at work in your heart and the Word's doing what it was designed to do. It's lifting us to the infinite treasure. We must then take heart. Jesus is becoming our overmastering desire and treasure. Church, from this point, what we're supposed to do is blow wind on that fire in every single one of us to fan the flame of, with encouragement and hope and, and, and lifting our eyes to the treasures of Jesus. That's what our role is together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word. Lord, there's danger on Sunday mornings. There's danger when we hear teachers and preachers and assuming that they got this mastered, and I don't. Lord, I wrestle daily, torn between the trinkets and treasures of this world and the infinite treasure of heaven. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating in your word over and over again, for lifting my eyes, for spotlighting Jesus for all that he is so that the things that I'm pursuing slowly and gradually and incrementally lose their luster. May you do that in each and every heart this morning. If there's someone who has not hoped in Jesus, in his righteousness, in his provision... In his good, loving care, may they do that this morning. For the rest of us who have done that, may you, may you tarnish the luster on the things of this world. And may Jesus sparkle infinitely more as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. I love the words of this song, I Shall Not Want. That's a confession. I do want, my heart is discontent. But it's also a prayer, it's also a plea. Please help, please come to the rescue. Please loosen my grip on this world. Show me Jesus, empower me, enable me to not look to the approval of man or to the stuff of this world. Jesus is all I need, Jesus is all we need. May we be satisfied in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.